0: In this episode of Thinking Through Autonomy, we talk to Dr. David Danks, Department Head and L.L. Thurston Professor of Philosophy and Psychology at Carnegie Mellon University. David is one of the world's premier ethicists in the area of artificial intelligence. He's examined the relations of trust and identity as they are affected by technologies like self-driving vehicles, autonomous weapon systems, and autonomous cyber systems. David and I talk about lessons from the United Nations AI for Good Summit, how to model human behavior for use by machines, what we need to understand about artificial intelligence and ethics, how to apply AI ethics to building a company or even a device, and key ethical considerations for driverless car and drone builders. Welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy, podcast to help you understand the promise and impact of autonomous land and air vehicles in our world. I'm Ken Dunlap, managing partner of Catalyst Go, taking you on this journey. Hear and read more at thinkingthroughautonomy.com. Now it's time to take your hands off the wheel, foot off the pedal, hand off that throttle, and let's go. David, welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy. It's really a pleasure to have you join us today. Thank you so much for having
1: me. It's a real pleasure to be here.
0: Now, you're just back from the AI for Good Summit in Geneva, sponsored by the United Nations. And I'm just kind of wondering, what's the big takeaway from delegates about where concerns about the ethical underpinnings of autonomous vehicles rank? Is it on their radar? Is it not on their radar? How high, how low?
1: I think that it's absolutely on people's radar screen right now. Part of the challenge, though, is having a sufficiently broad understanding of what those ethical impacts just might be. I think right now people are very focused on the traditional trolley problem kinds of concerns. How can autonomous vehicles make the kinds of ethical trade-offs that humans are forced to make in truly horrible situations? But I think that the ethical impacts go much broader than that, both in terms of the ways that autonomous vehicles could reshape societies to the very low-level decisions these systems have to make. And I think what we saw at the AI for Good Summit is that delegates and people on the political side of the aisle are really starting to recognize, though they haven't yet been able to develop solutions for these broader sets of problems that go beyond just localized choices.
0: Am I to take it that you're high on what you saw over at the AI for Good Summit, and you think that this forum has legs to start working on the global impact of some of these issues?
1: Um, Well, I think that that's a difficult thing to ask. Uh, When we think about global impact, getting coordination between countries is always a difficult challenge. And one of the things that the AI for Good Global Summit really does is bring together people from many different sectors uh, and many different backgrounds. So you have political leaders who worry about autonomous vehicles talking to farmers who are trying to improve detection of blight affecting their crops. And by getting that kind of cross-fertilization, I think that we can get a number of new ideas about ways to regulate uh, both for people's protection and for the promotion of work within a sector. The challenge is, I think, that things like a global summit are not necessarily the right venue to try to actually create the policies. That requires the hard work within the countries, within the context of the UN proper, uh, that we're still figuring out the best ways to get there.
0: Well, I'd like to dive into this more in just a bit, but first I wanna talk about your background as a scientist and a researcher because it's just absolutely fascinating. The bulk of what I've seen you do over the last several years has really focused on predicting human behavior. How does predicting human behavior help enlighten us about autonomy and about the ethical decisions that we're facing with AI?
1: Well, I think it, it comes into play in many different ways. So I originally came to these sorts of questions about the ethical and social and psychological impacts of autonomy within technology from the perspective of somebody who was focused on cognitive science and machine learning myself. So I was really interested in trying to understand how we humans wrestle with the complexity of the world around us, as well as how we can get machines both to wrestle with that complexity themselves, but also assist us as we try to navigate the uh, strange world that we all that we all get to live in. And so this got me really asking questions about how ought? the machines be helping the humans navigate through the world. Uh, And not just spatial navigation, but social navigation, or making the right decision about what kind of treatment to use for a medical condition. And what that really has, I think, uh, produced in my work and my research is a focus on technology in service of human ends and goals rather than technology as an end in itself. But if we really want to be able to understand technology through that lens, we have to understand how people might use the technology, how it might shape our cognition, and how it might shape the social relations that we have with one another. Uh, We can't just technology toss it over uh, the proverbial wall and hope that nothing goes wrong when it lands in society. We have to take seriously that these technologies are being used by people, for people, and understand how that will change things.
0: Let's just take this subject apart just a little bit. We use the term cognition. And I'm just wondering, what is cognition? I think that that's a great question, especially because we're coming to realize that
1: many of the things that we thought were distinctive to human cognition, or at least animal cognition, can be fairly straightforwardly implemented in machines, but many aspects of what we've sort of traditionally lumped under the heading of human cognition turn out not to be able to be easily implemented in machines. And so this is called into question, what is it that we really have in mind when we use terms like cognition, which is to say thought and thinking and rationality and reasoning? And of course, it's very easy to throw out those terms, but they're meant in many ways as synonyms for one another. And so the challenge we have with cognition is with understanding the nature of cognition is to be able to identify what is distinctive about some sort of thinking agent, which is something around being able to adapt in rational or sensible ways to changes in our environment, changes in the goals that are around us, uh, goals that we have uh, in interacting with the world and thereby achieve the ends that we have in mind. So when I drop my phone and it falls to the ground, there's no cognition occurring there because it is simply subject to the laws of gravity. But when I see my phone falling and I think that's going to be a problem when it smashes on the ground, well, that's very much cognition. Uh, We may not be able to do anything about it, but we're able to anticipate the world's changes, plan for them, Uh, attempt to control the world around us, all in ways that are finely tuned to variations in the environment.
0: Well, we opened up the show by speaking a little bit about AI, and I think maybe now's the time to do the deep dive into it. One of the issues that I'm finding with AI these days is that everything from toothbrushes to drones to automobiles are being advertised as having artificial intelligence behind it. David, what do we mean by artificial intelligence when it comes to machines?
1: Well, I think one of the the striking things that doesn't get talked about very much is actually the fact that I would argue that within the community of people that we think of as AI researchers and developers, very few people use the term AI. The problem is that if we think about cognition, to go back to your earlier question, when we want to implement cognition in a machine, we're not talking about any one thing we're talking about a whole series of processes and operations that have to occur in order to get intelligent behavior. It's everything from sensing the world around us to perceiving, to realizing it's a phone in front of me rather than a brick, to being able to learn from the world, to plan, to predict what might happen if we carry out different kinds of actions. And so what you find in the AI community is that people don't refer to themselves as AI researchers or AI developers. They instead work on computer vision or machine learning or planning algorithms. And so if we really want to dive into what it is to do AI in a machine, do AI, to do machine cognition, what it is is it's to attempt to capture many of these different kinds of cognitive processes that seem to be important parts of intelligence and figure out how to implement something like that process in a computer. Now, we can get a lot of advantages in that by looking at a kind of proof of concept for intelligence, namely what humans do. But we have a great deal of freedom when it comes to uh, machines. Now, if we think back to your first part of your question, or the observation that AI is being used as a branding term for just about everything, it seems these days, we, I think, quickly realize that there's actually very little true artificial intelligence, if any, going into the vast majority of these systems. Instead, what we're seeing is mostly uh, fairly straightforward kinds of either learning or planning systems that are not terribly sophisticated in many ways. So they can give the appearance of being intelligent. They can adapt uh, in certain natural ways but they don't have anything like the kinds of flexibility that I think would truly be needed to have intelligence. Instead, I think what we have is we have toothbrushes that can learn or you know, Skype algorithms that can adapt to changes in background noise or these
0: kinds of things. But when I think about this whole subject, is it appropriate for me to say, okay, there's one discipline called artificial intelligence but then there's also sub within that, like machine learning, like deep learning. Is that how it's broken up? Am I understanding this right? I think that that's a natural way to think about it. I think the question that
1: then immediately arises is whether there actually is any overarching discipline that we should consider the discipline of AI. Certainly for rhetorical and branding reasons, these different sub are getting lumped together. But one of the things that has been striking to watch over the last 15 to 20 years has been the really astonishing growth and advances that have occurred in each of the sub without necessarily having much or any advances in how to put the pieces back together. So we have tremendous machine learning algorithms and astonishingly powerful planning algorithms. And computer vision has has just progressed in ways that many people doubted would even be possible 20 years ago. And yet what we see with things like autonomous vehicles is the tremendous challenge where we still are not quite sure how to address the challenge of putting these pieces together. Uh, So to actually have a kind of integrated intelligence that can carry out so many of these different operations all at once, remains a, a very large problem that we are really wrestling with as a community. We don't quite know how to put the pieces back together.
0: I've got just one more foundational piece of the puzzle I want to talk about before we go on to the main topic, which is ethics. We keep hearing about these things called neural networks. That gets associated with machine learning, which gets associated with a plethora of other learnings, including AI. Can you kind of tell us what we need to think about when we hear the term neural network? Is that just descriptive of a piece of hardware or is it descriptive of something that is a key tool to having a system at some point that has cognition?
1: Well, it might be a little bit of both. So when you hear the term neural network, what that really is at root, um, a neural network is simply a lot of matrix algebra that if you happen to uh, take that class when you were in college or even just write down equations in high school, It's basically just that. It's not in and of itself anything that is directly neural. It's not in and of itself something that is necessarily any more powerful uh, than lots of other kinds of models that we might have to use for prediction or learning or planning. What I think is ultimately so powerful about neural networks is that they are incredibly flexible. And in that way, they are are mirroring some of the power that we see in the human mind to be flexible and adapt and learn uh, in entirely new circumstances and situations. And so I think it is likely that something with the kinds of flexibility that we see in a neural network, uh, which is, for example, what is produced by a deep learning algorithm. A deep learning algorithm just produces a very large, very complicated neural network that sort of power is likely to be important when we're trying to create systems that have much higher levels of intelligence than what we have right now. But I think that it is a would probably be a mistake to think it's the only way that we can have much more powerful intelligences than what we have right now in machines. Right now, I think there's a very strong push, a lot of hype around deep learning and the neural networks that result from deep learning methods. And there's no question that we are able to do much more now than we could five years ago or 10 years ago before we had this deep learning revolution. But I think we're also starting now to run into some of the limits of deep learning. And people are actively working on ways to extend or augment neural networks and deep learning algorithms, so that we get the best of both worlds. We don't just get very flexible systems, we don't get the very rigid, old-school, 1980s expert systems, but rather we get something that's the best of both worlds.
0: Let's move on to the field of ethics, because you are an ethicist, and traditionally, when I think of ethics, I think of the system of the beliefs that people use to guide their decisions to some sort of qualitative outcome, whether that's happiness or fulfillment or whatever we call that. But when we use the word ethics in the world of machines, of silicon, what does ethics mean? Well, that's a great question. Unfortunately, I think many people use the word
1: ethics in a negative way. Ethics is the veto power that comes in at the very end of a machine making a decision. So a car is trying to figure out exactly which trajectory to take through an environment, and the ethics algorithm is this module that gets plugged in at the end that vetoes certain trajectories and says those are not acceptable. I think that's entirely the wrong way to think about ethics. How should in technology? we think about it? I think... So I think what we need to be thinking about is to go back to your original conception that you laid out there. Ethics is about figuring out what we should do in order to realize our values and interests. And we realize those oftentimes through technology. And so what we have to ask ourselves is what are the values that are being embedded or encoded in the technology that we are building? How is that technology helping to empower people or disempower people? Uh, what are the choices that are being made possible or precluded by use of the particular technology. And that's a much broader lens that brings ethics in at every step of the of the sort of development and deployment pipeline. From asking which problems we should try and tackle in the first place, why do we even think, for example, that we ought to have self-driving cars? I'm not saying we shouldn't, I'm saying that's an ethical question that should be asked before we even start development all the way up to questions of regulation. How do we ensure that these technologies are working for the benefit of the many rather than for the benefit of the few?
0: One of the things that occurs to me after what you just said is that the university seems to be one of those places where you wanna start the discussion. So engineers have those um, earlier in their career. The ethicists have that earlier in their career and I noted that CMU, your university, just baked ethics into your brand new undergraduate degree in AI. This is a great first step, but do you foresee the day when it's not just an undergraduate degree in AI, but maybe it's an undergraduate degree in machine ethics, maybe it's a doctorate in machine ethics? Uh, What do we need to have in terms of an academic body of research to allow the greater community to learn and implement what we've found out about so far on the role of ethics and machines? Well,
1: I think we need to approach it along many different lines. So one aspect is, as you said, bringing it into the undergraduate curriculum, for example, the ethics and societal impact requirement of our AI major here at Carnegie Mellon that you mentioned. Part of it is bringing it into the graduate curriculum Uh, We here at Carnegie Mellon have graduate fellowships specifically for ethics and computational technologies. And a big part of that is to enable uh, the graduate students who are going to become the next generation of leaders in research and development to really think through the ethical obligations and commitments that they bring to bear on their technological development and research. I think it's also an, an important role that universities can play in connecting with companies. Many of the tech companies right now don't have a whole lot of in-house expertise on how to think through the ethical and social impacts of the tech they're building. That's entirely sensible. I don't mean to critique them for this, they are focused on building amazing technology. And so one of the things that I think we in academia can do is we can provide that knowledge, that specialized knowledge in how to think through the impacts and implications of the technology for these companies. So I know personally, I do a decent amount of consulting work with companies trying to help them identify what are actionable principles that can guide their own research and development. I think we have to approach it from the point of view of regulation and policy. Right now, you've mentioned autonomous vehicles a couple of times, and right now, there's a lot of debate, both locally here in Pittsburgh and nationally in the United States and globally, between countries, around how we ought to regulate autonomous vehicles. What are the policies that we should put into place? And. Unfortunately, many of the politicians don't necessarily have the technical knowledge, many of the technologists don't necessarily understand the political constraints or the ethical implications. And so I think it's crucial that we step in from uh, universities to provide assistance and guidance. It's not to say that the decision should be delegated to us, Uh, it's to say that we have to think about these issues along all of these different dimensions. The technology simply changes too fast for us to only try to shape and improve things at one point in the process. I think we really need to be focusing all the way along from education to development, to deployment, to regulation.
0: David, let's dig into this just a little bit more deeply. And I wanna talk about the corporate environment. We know that Microsoft has its AI principles. We know that Amazon has fairness and artificial intelligence. We also know that Google had and dropped an AI ethics board, and that occurred in a very public and spectacular fashion. And just from an organizational point of view, why is it so hard for a corporation or any, any private group to organize around AI principles, let alone define what those principles are? Is there a problem? Well,
1: I, I think that they face a really fundamental challenge. Uh, The first is that I think in many companies, they're used to talking about high level values, but they're not used to talking through what they should do when those values come into conflict with one another. And that's fundamentally where I think a lot of ethics work has to be done is when our values come into conflict with each other, either between you and me or values that I have within myself. If I'm in a company, I want to make money so my company can be profitable so that I can return value to the venture capitalists who funded us or to a shareholder. Uh, I also want to make money so my company can stay in business. We can't do good for people if we're out of business. On the other hand, I might want to empower people with the technology we build, or I might want to be able to make people be able to accomplish things they couldn't do before because of technology. And these can come into conflict with one another and i think one of the things that has been happening with a lot of these technology companies is they're they've become very good at saying what their values are and not very good at providing actionable guidance to their employees about how to resolve conflicts between those values and on the one hand that's reasonable these conflicts often are very context dependent it depends on exactly what kind of technology you're building it depends on who it might impact in various ways. On the other hand, I think that there is a lot that companies could do to put processes and procedures in place to help their employees work through it. That's though not the kind of thing that CEOs are necessarily good at doing. So I think it's a real challenge that these companies face and it's one they're going to have to resolve if they want to be able to defend the ethical nature of the technology they're building. But uh, I think it's unsurprising that so many of them are struggling so much to find ways to do it, given that they're trying to have very high-level general principles that apply in every case for every employee, for any technology. That's just a hopeless goal. And so I think that they need to recognize the importance of really tying the principles they develop
0: down into practical
1: guidance for their
0: employees. David, when your phone rings and the company at the other end says, we'd like you to come on in and we'd like you to take a look at the ethics behind some of our technology. That seems to be a pretty big ask, but an autopsy like that has to start somewhere. How would you look at an existing product, an existing, you know, line of services and ask yourself, what is the foundational question I need to know the answer to, to evaluate how ethics is built into or not built into this technology?
1: Well, interestingly, many of the questions that that I or others would immediately ask are actually the same questions that you would ask if you were trying to find out whether some technology was the product of good design. So you ask, what problem Is the technology intended to solve? Does it solve it for the people it is intended to help? What are the unintended consequences that might result from the use of this technology? Are the users of the technology appropriately informed about what is happening in the technology and uh, with, for example, their data? Are people clear about whether they even are users of the technology in contrast with, for example, many social networking sites where people think they are users, but they are actually the data. They're actually the product, that, and the users are advertisers. So I think what you have to start with is asking about what the intent of the technology is and how successful it is at achieving that intent. Many cases of what we might consider to be unethical technology or technology that falls short on that dimension, I think ultimately come to not that people did a bad job of producing the technology, but rather that they produce technology to solve a different problem or the technology manages to solve a different problem than the one that people actually wanted technology to solve. So if I'm trying to build something that helps my students learn. I wanna build an online tutor that will help my students learn in the classroom. And instead what I produce is a system that is very well designed for getting students to memorize and regurgitate facts on a multiple choice test. But that's not what I wanted the technology to do. Um, It was just not well designed for what I wanted. It was very well designed for something that is a nearby cousin of what I wanted. And so I really think that's the first step. Now, once you have an understanding of the design principles and the design intent and realization of a technology, then you can start to do the autopsy of connecting it to the values of the company, the values of the employees, the values of the users. Because now you can ask whether, in fact, people are having their values and interests advanced by the technology, or whether the technology is advancing the values and interests of somebody else, in which case we would be getting a lot closer to something that is very ethically problematic.
0: And I think what you're talking about as well is that these companies need to have some sort of corporate commitment to ethics in the work that they do. But you and I both know that when you take a look at coding, that's based on production and volume, and you have folks that are working in a production environment. If you take a look at the C- C-suite, the C-suite have a whole different set of interests. If you look at today's company and the way they're put together, is it really possible to have a business that's entrenched in the processes that they have to actually flip things around and say, we are suddenly gonna become a company that writes ethics into every product that comes out the door?
1: Well, perhaps I'm a hopeless optimist, but I think the answer is yes. Uh, And I think the answer is yes, because I think we've seen it happen in the form of companies that have real leadership. You're absolutely right that there are different incentives for different groups within companies. And the reality is that I would say at least half of the time that I talk with companies and they want ethical guidance, it's actually a very simple problem that they face. They know exactly what the ethical thing to do would be. They just don't want to do it. And, you know, as somebody from the outside, that's a little bit tricky. Uh, Because I look at these companies and I say, I'm not entirely sure what I'm supposed to do to convince you of something you already know. In that sense, it's like adding comments to code. We all know that comments and documentation are really important to do in coding. We just don't like to do it. And so it's a question of whether a company is going to have the commitment to do the ethical thing that they know they should do. Now, having said that, I do think that we have the possibility of making ethics be something that is just part of the everyday practice of good companies, good in the sense of good performing companies. And part of the reason I think we might be able to do that is by reflection on what happened with user interface and user experience design over the last, I mean, let's say 30 years. You know, 30 years ago, it was a rare, unusual thing to have a UX designer embedded as part of a a software team. They were the people that got brought in at the very end, if at all. Instead, the user interface was usually done just by the developers and coders themselves. Whereas now, I think in any serious technology company, of course you have a UX person who's involved in the process from the very beginning. Now, companies do it to better and worse degrees, but it's just part of doing good product development is that you have a UX person involved, uh, oftentimes an entire UX team that's involved from the outset. And I think uh, an open question, but one that I'm optimistic about, is whether the same sort of thing can happen with thinking about the ethical and societal impacts of technology. That right now, it's the rare, unusual company that has an ethicist or a sociologist involved in the design or development of a tech product. But I'm optimistic or hopeful that we might reach a point in 10, 15 years perhaps, where it's just par for the course. It's the normal part of good product design and development in the tech industry, is that of course you have somebody with an ethical or sociological background who can help to understand the impacts of the technology.
0: The C-suite now has the another CEO, the chief ethics officer, and in fact, you're seeing that
1: sort of thing happening uh, at many of these companies right now. So, as a one concrete example, Salesforce.com has a chief ethical use officer. Uh, you're seeing the U.S. Department of Defense through uh, in collaboration with the Defense Innovation Board trying to develop ethical and responsible use principles for technology in the USDOD and i think that these are all connected in the idea that you need to have some group of individuals that is trying to embed these kinds of principles and practices and processes throughout the organization
0: let's kind of switch gears metaphorically and literally to talk about driverless cars for a little bit more earlier in the podcast we were talking about I'll call them these larger examples. Should a driverless car plunge off a cliff to avoid a pedestrian on the street, thereby killing the uh, occupants of the vehicle, or should the driverless car, fortunately, hit the pedestrian? So we've got a lot of these thought examples that really, you know, maybe present more of an edge case than presenting a main ethical worry about a driverless vehicle. And what I'm wondering is, when we focus on these larger, more dramatic questions, are we masking thought that needs to go into deeper and more fundamental questions about the ethics behind the driverless car? Like are there biases in the data sets we're using to train our vehicles? And, and there are many permutations of that. So where, where do you think we need to look at a driverless vehicle and start that ethical analysis? So I'm uh, 100% on the
1: side that we have focused too much on edge cases that are based on a misunderstanding of how the technology even works in the first place. So here's an example of what I think is a really deep ethical problem confronting driverless cars. I think that most people would agree that all else being equal, driverless cars should obey the law. I think most people would agree that, all else being equal, driverless cars should minimize the probability of an accident. That they should—that is to say, they should drive safely, uh, at least you know, subject to driving at all. I mean, the safest way to avoid an accident is never to get on the road in the first place. The problem is that those two ethical commitments, those two value commitments, uh, come into conflict with one another. So all else being equal, the speed that minimizes the probability of an accident is roughly the speed of prevailing traffic around you. And if uh, you're in a place of which there are many, for example, here in Pittsburgh, where you have a speed limit 25 zone that everyone's doing 35 to 40 in, in those cases, there's an ethical dilemma. You cannot simultaneously follow the law and drive as safely as possible in the sense of minimizing the probability of an accident. And that is, in many ways, a really deep ethical challenge that's not a technological one. The vehicle doesn't care. You can program a, an autonomous car to do either one, to either follow the speed limit and go 25 in that case, or to drive with the speed of the traffic around it and go 35 to 40. The vehicle doesn't care but you have to make an ethical choice just to put the vehicle on the street in the first place. It's not an edge case. Uh, Here in Pittsburgh, it's probably more common than it should be that you have these sorts of situations. And so I think those are the kinds of ethical decisions that are already being made. Right now, the developers at all of these Autonomous vehicle companies are having to make that decision. Do they code it to always follow the law, or do they code it to minimize the probability of an accident? And that kind of ethical choice is one that I think should be talked about much more openly, because that's actually where the the proverbial rubbers meet in the road that's where we have to be willing to make trade-offs. We can't have everything we want, so which trade-offs will we do? It's not the trade-off of, do we hit one pedestrian or two people in another car? It's the trade-off that every one of us makes most of the time we get behind the wheel, which is, boy, everyone around me is driving awfully fast. Should I drive their speed or should I just stick to it and drive the speed limit no matter what? And um, in getting vehicles to be able to resolve this, in a way that we can all endorse is, I think, a a deep political problem in addition to an ethical one.
0: Isn't there a problem as well with the vast amount of secrecy that goes behind the development and much rightly so of these driverless vehicles? And that maybe some of these questions will have a very difficult time seeing the light of day because they may expose technology advances or some sort of, of parts of that system that can be duplicated and for competitive reasons we really can't talk about that? I think that's a potential risk and it's
1: uh, one of the reasons that I, along with my colleague here at CMU, Alex John London, we've proposed that in fact the regulation of autonomous vehicles should not proceed along the lines it's currently seems to be going, but rather should be inspired by the ways that we regulate medical and pharmaceutical interventions through, for example, the drug approval process. Because many of those kinds of secrecy concerns arise uh, in much the same way when we're talking about the large drug manufacturers, uh, that Merck has a very strong competitive reason not to give out all of the details about exactly what it is that they are going to be doing in some new drug that's been submitted for approval. And one of the functions of the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA here in the United States, is exactly to be a trusted information broker. The FDA is provided with a large amount of information about the function and design of drugs that the FDA does not make public. But it acts on behalf of the public to make decisions about whether sensible trade offs are being uh, made in the development of some new pharmaceutical. And it seems to me, and also uh, Alex, that we need to think about whether the same kind of structure should be in place for autonomous vehicles, that there arguably needs to be a trusted information broker that all of these companies, Waymo, Uber ATG, Argo, Aurora, and many others, that they are all able to tell this trusted information broker about some of the technical details and trade-offs that they are implementing in their systems so that those can be approved in the public interest without thereby disclosing to their competitors important key technical details that provide a competitive advantage.
0: Let's just drill down maybe one level deeper for the audience. We know that these driverless systems, these autonomous systems, rely on vast data sets that they train against, the training data. Can you talk a little bit about the considerations that a designer might need or an engineer might need in trying to ensure or at least identify whether or not bias has creeped unintentionally or unintentionally into the data sets that are being used to train the vehicles? And it's a great question because that's uh, exactly
1: one of these places where we don't know very much about what's actually happening because as you said, this is uh, one of the key Distinguishing features between the companies uh, is exactly what data they have available to train on. So there are a number of different ways in which bias can creep into these systems as a result of the training data that are used. Probably the most obvious one is if there are particular kinds of situations or experiences or input that are underrepresented in the data set. So, for example, if you have a data set in which all of the pedestrians are Caucasian, then arguably the system might not learn that somebody who has darker skin is also a pedestrian. Now, there are ways of trying to address this if you know that certain kinds of cases are underrepresented in your data set, but we run into really two different problems with that response. The first is, We don't actually know what are all of the situations that matter when it comes to distinguishing harder and easier cases when it comes to driving. But the bigger issue is that many of these systems learn about the world and represent the world differently than we humans do. So differences that matter to us might not matter to the system and vice versa. This goes back to a very early question you asked about neural networks. Neural networks are incredibly flexible and adaptable and can learn really complicated regularities from uh, large data sets. But they often learn about the data and represent the data quite differently than we humans do. So what you get is that these systems can be tricked or fooled or give the wrong answer in cases that seem just completely obvious to us humans. Uh, one of the classic examples of these so-called adversarial attacks is that you can trick most image recognition systems into thinking that a turtle is actually a rifle, which is kind of a strange error to make. There's no input data that would about a turtle that would lead a human to think it's a rifle, and yet it's not hard to do with most of these systems. Or if we think about some of the adversarial uh, responses that people have developed for autonomous vehicles, put some tape on a stop sign, and the car will think that it's a speed limit 35 or a yield sign in a way that we humans just look and think, oh, that's annoying, there's tape on a stop sign. Somebody put tape on there, how dare they? Yeah, why did they do that? And so I think while it would be nice to pretend that we could just figure out what would be a representative data set, I think we often don't know. I mean, in some cases, it's really easy. If you're designing a car that you want to have be able to function worldwide, you probably need to make sure it has input data from both countries where you drive on the right-hand side of the road and countries where you drive on the left-hand side of the road. If you just dropped one of the autonomous cars trained here in Pittsburgh into London, it would probably not end well. But we don't really know what those limits are. We don't really know what counts as representative data for these kinds of systems. And so that's a very natural way for biases to creep in without us ever being aware of the possibility that the systems would do strange things that would harm some groups rather than others.
0: One or two last questions in this area, David. All of these vehicles are essentially systems of systems and the driverless car manufacturer or the airframe manufacturer winds up being the integrator of a lot of other companies' work. When you're in a situation where each subcomponent contributes to the operation of the vehicle and perhaps the ethical decisions that need to be made, what kind of framework do you suggest to make sure that each of these subcomponents contribute to the ethics of the system as a whole? Or are we too early in this discussion to even start thinking about that because we don't know about how the overall system's working right now?
1: Uh, I certainly don't think that it's too early to ask these questions.
0: Uh, I think one of the most important
1: aspects here is uh, for us to figure out the right way for the different component manufacturers to communicate to the, let's just call it the assembler, even though what, what those companies are doing is far more than just assembly. How do they communicate to the assembler what the component actually does? When I'm building a an ordinary human-driven human car, it's not that difficult for the brake manufacturer to tell me if I'm Ford uh, exactly what it is that the brake system does. Because what they're able to do is give a kind of performance profile of, in these contexts, when this level of force is applied, here's exactly how the system will respond. But those kinds of performance specs are almost always... Designed and written for relatively closed contexts, which is say context that we can precisely specify. And one of the challenges that we have as we have more and more intelligence added into technology is that it becomes usable in more and more contexts. So if we just take a a not AI example, it's pretty straightforward to explain what it is that an ordinary cruise control system does. If I build cruise control and I wanna hand it, I wanna sell it to Ford, it's not hard to explain that it essentially just controls the, the speed of the engine in order to ensure that the vehicle speed stays the same. Now, let's just shift to adaptive cruise control. Now, the system is much more complex. It is processing more information. It has to be able to perform differently, depending on whether there's a lot of rain or not, for example, it might need to be able to signal that it can't carry out its ordinary functions. And so we have to have a language so that we can ensure that the the maker of the adaptive cruise control is able to tell Ford exactly how it's going to perform. Now, that's adding a very small amount of intelligence to a system in many ways. What if we now have cruise control where the cruise control system decides whether the traffic around it is so dense that it probably isn't safe to use cruise control anymore. Or decides that the traffic is so dense that it's better to use cruise control because the human is tailgating and driving unsafely. How are we going to build a component and then communicate to Ford exactly what this component's going to do? And I think when we think about how to avoid the kind of ordinary accidents that arise when complex systems are dropped into complex environments, that's really dependent upon the assemblers, the aggregators, understanding what each of the components is capable of doing and how it will behave. And right now we don't have very good language for transmitting that kind of information between companies. And so I, I fear we're going to have a number, we'll have more accidents before uh, we're able to figure this out.
0: Let's just move on for a minute in the last couple of minutes that we have on this podcast. And get back to the operational considerations when you're talking about an autonomous vehicle. And it, you know, occurs to me that we can do our best to build an ethical autonomous vehicle. And at some point, we'll have that solved. But that vehicle can still behave in ways we may consider to be unethical. So my thought experiment is, is if we have a vehicle that's designed to go from point A to B, it can do that. But in doing so, it chooses a routing that maybe disenfranchises parts of a city, maybe creates service gaps, which hurt a community. Is that the same question that we need to think about when we construct a vehicle? So, is the end use something that we can control as we're building it, or does that hit a different level of ethics and community responsibility?
1: Well, I think I think it's all interconnected. So. When you're developing the system, I think that one ought to be sensitive to the ways that it's potentially going to be used. But of course, the use of a system depends in part on what the system's capabilities are. And so there's a kind of, to use a, a term from biology, a kind of coevolution of functions and uses. And so that's where I think there needs to be more community engagement by some of these companies to try to determine what the challenges really are that are faced by the communities. I think there needs to be more leadership and guidance from political leaders about what uh, would be acceptable standards for these kinds of behaviors, but also feedback from the technological community about which things are feasible or which things are particularly challenging to do. I think anyone who's ever uh, been involved in a software project knows the feeling of uh, somebody who isn't one of the coders walking in the room and saying, well, why can't we just make this little change? And you realize that that little change is going to mean refactoring thousands of lines of code. And so there has to be, I think, this sort of dialogue between the different groups in order to ensure that we end up in in an appropriate place where we don't have groups being disenfranchised, where you know the vehicles are aware of the, for example, um, socioeconomic makeup of the neighborhoods they're driving through, not because they should be riskier in some neighborhoods than in others, but in order to ensure that uh, there is equitable use or access to these resources, to these technologies. And then there's going to have to be follow-up by regulatory bodies and by political entities to ensure that the community is being helped uh, rather than being harmed.
0: Well, as they say, everything ends with regulation. My last question for you, David, do you fear that when we enter this brave new world where ethics is regulated, That we're going to have the same social fault lines that we have in society today affecting how these regulations are made and maybe stunting progress on them and maybe taking our social insecurity and turning that into a vehicle that's insecure as well. Can we stop that from happening?
1: Well, I mean, I would say right now uh, the technology is rapidly outpacing the regulation. So I'm, I'm not yet worried that the regulation would stunt the technological development. I think, if anything, uh, the regulation is constantly trying to race to catch up. But yes, it is, of course, a worry that regulation will be used as a tool to lock in social differences that it will be used by one group to disenfranchise or disempower others. Um, There's the worry of the kinds of regulatory capture, for example, that have occurred in much of the financial industry, where you have the regulators and the regulatees are working so closely that the lines are sometimes blurred between them. I think those are all significant worries, and those are also all reasons that uh, academics, in particular, and those in think tanks, have perhaps a distinctive role to play as people who have the kinds of multidisciplinary expertise that might be required here, but also are not beholden to um, to the technology companies or to any particular interest group. And so I think it's an enormous worry. Uh, the regulations that we get are going to probably have a long-term Significant impact on the trajectories that these technologies take as they're developed and deployed, and you know, right now, I guess I would settle for making sure all of the right people have seats at the table because we're not even at that point yet. So maybe, uh, maybe the the worries are ones that we'll need to address, but we aren't even yet at the point that we have substantive regulation of these technologies or even substantive discussions of regulations of many of these technologies. And I think that that's, a, that's maybe a first step.
0: Well, David, you've had the last word today. Hey. I cannot thank you enough for being on Thinking Through Autonomy. It's really been a pleasure. And I'm sure in the years ahead, we're going to want to tap you again, because AI and AI ethics is going to be at the front burner for probably the rest of our lives. So thank you.
1: Well, thanks to you. As a uh, you know these issues are present in all of our minds every single day and uh, it's important for us to find the right ways to think through them.